this is Dr. Jerry Jaffe, and welcome to the Comical Heathen. Comical Heathen is my own personal exploration of the art and craft of religious satire. This is our fourth episode with many more to come, and I'm personally very psyched about today's interview. Do you, TED Talk? I have a lot of friends who like to watch TED Talks. There are over 2,000 TED Talks available for free over a range of platforms like YouTube and Netflix. And you know, the TED videos have been watched worldwide over a billion times. A billion. Do you have a favorite TED Talk? Mine is probably the one with uh, Michael Shermer called Why People Believe Weird Things. Well, TED is not just some anonymous corporate entity. They are run by people. And as it happens, an old college chum of mine is the managing editor over at TED. Her name is Emily McManus, and we met at the University of Toledo as students. We were in a class together back in the 80s, and uh, of all things, that class was about satire. And when I thought of that, it got me thinking, I wonder what kind of editorial process TED uses. How do they curate their videos and, and, and lectures? How do they incorporate or manage controversial topics like religion, psychic, pseudoscience, stuff like that? You know, Ted's motto is, ideas worth spreading. And I wondered how do they decide which ideas are the ones worth spreading and which are too fringe or too unscientific, the ideas that are worth not spreading. So Emily and I had a great talk. You know, she told me about her involvement in trying to help TEDx event organizers have some standards and the controversial memo she helped write. She also gives a rundown of how TED started and some of the background there. She tells us about some of her favorite videos, and I'll post a couple of them in the comments on our website. And by the way, we did this interview via Skype, and we actually had a pretty good connection with above-average sound quality. But still, it does sound a little bit Skypey. Nonetheless, please enjoy my conversation with the managing editor at TED, my friend Emily McManus. Well, welcome everyone to the Comical Heathen. This is your host, Dr. Jerry Jaffe, and I am pleased to welcome our guest today, Emily McManus. Hey, Hi, Emily. Hey, Jerry. Uh, I want to let everybody know we're recording this interview by Skype, so I hope the sound quality stays up to snuff, and thank you for listening. Uh, you work for TED. I do. What do you do at TED? Yeah. Um, well, I'm the managing editor of TED. Okay. And... So my job is to work with the curators who are booking speakers for our events, as well as independent TEDx curators who sure. are part of this global program of local events, independent events, and take the videos of speakers that these two people make and put them on the web <laughs> using digital tools, using okay. web video, articles, things that we can share. Basically, TED is a platform for ideas. And, you know, our platform includes all kinds of things from, you know, TED Talks, the video sure. that you might know, um, articles, books, events. We do a fellowship program. We give prizes. We have lots and lots of ways that we support great ideas and the sharing of great ideas. Now, and, been, uh, yeah. according to your bio on the TED website, you've been there mm -hmm. for 10 years? I sure have. Okay. Yeah. Um, I want to mention, because uh, it relates to my next question, that for any for the people listening at home, 
Emily and I first met in college. That was in the last century when we were both century. undergraduates ah. <laughs> at the University of Toledo. <laughs> yeah. And um, how does a person go from being a student at the University of Toledo and end up working at TED? I mean, how do you get that job? Yeah, oh, that's a great question. And it's funny because it's like, I think being from Toledo, Ohio has shaped a lot of the attitude that I take toward our work at TED. Because, you know, what TED is, is like, it's taking ideas from these really pretty closed societies, closed silos, zones of expertise, of extreme expertise, whether it's like MIT or, you know, it's some, you know, dot com at Silicon Valley. It's some place where knowledge is held pretty tightly. And one of the things that I love about what we do at TED is we mm -hmm. go out and we find these people mm -hmm. and help them share their idea more broadly with a general audience who might care about it. And, you know, I mean, grew up in, growing up in Toledo, you know, we didn't necessarily have access to those silos sure, of expertise, sure. you know, and, and there's definitely a talk or two on TED.com that I'm like, you know, if I had seen this when I was 14 or 15, you know, I might have chosen a different life path. I sure. might have thought about things differently. But really, I mean, the way that you get a job like this is you just look like you're going to work really hard. <laughs> well, but I wasn't asking how do, how do I get a job at TED? How did you get a job at TED? Yeah. Um, um, so how did I get a job at TED? Is, graduate uh, school, qualifications? Yeah. Um, well, I was a history major mm -hmm. and so just interested in everything. Mm -hmm. And um, actually my senior year at University of Toledo, I was a copy editor on a historical okay. journal that we published out of the, not out of the Candidate Center. I worked at, in an archive as well. Sure. Like I was just interested in a lot of different things, but as a copy editor, I had a skill. Okay. And then I decided that there probably weren't a lot of jobs for copy editors in Toledo that weren't <laughs> at the newspaper where my mother also worked. And I was like, you know, I, I love my mother, but I don't think I can work the same place as her. And um, <laughs> Silicon Valley had a lot of jobs okay. for copy editors. And so I moved across the country and I had this skill and the skill that I, you know, I tested very well yep. at this, this one particular skill and um, got a job. Worked my way up at one magazine, went to another magazine, went to another magazine. And um, so I've just been this, this editorial head my oh, whole okay. life. So, yeah, if, if there's one thing I would say to definitely younger people, it's think of a skill that you <laughs> might have. And you may not end up with that doing that job for a thousand years. But right. a skill that's nameable is kind of a can opener to right. a new job, a new city, gives you something beyond just being a nice person. Copy editor and then working in publications of different types. Yep. And then and, one day, uh, all kinds. So 10, 10 years and one day ago. I worked at Lefty <laughs> Weekly newspapers. Um, I worked at a bridal magazine. You know, if you're an sure. editorial person, you're interested in a lot of different kinds of things. And sure. so that was a great skill to take to TED because I'm just interested mm -hmm. in, in lots and lots of stuff and learned how to research it and how to look at things critically and not, you know, and to care about presenting information to an audience and, uh, and presenting it well. Yeah. So, yeah. so that's, this... that's kind of where I ended up there. And, um, you know, when I started at Ted, there were seven of us and I interviewed for my job in Chris Anderson's spare bedroom. <laughs> um, and we, you know, it was growing very, very quickly. Um, okay. and now we think we have 175 staff across okay the world. Um, and that's all in 10 years. It's just been a wild ride. It's been very, very interesting. When did um, TED have its first conference? The first actual TED conference was in 1984. Okay. Uh, and at that conference, 
the, I mean, the most exciting thing to me that happened at that conference was um, a guy from Sony came and demoed the compact disc, <laughs> which had been invented two years ago, but like kind of nobody knew about it. Right. Um, you know, and he gets up there and he's got the disc in his hand and he's like, it's five and a quarter inches across with a minimal wow and flutter. You know, he's like giving <laughs> these crazy technical specs and he holds it up and he goes, and you just play it on the one side. <laughs> like, you know, like there was a time we did not know that. Um, and so 84 was the first conference. And then um, in 2001, the curator who owns it now, Ted, uh, Chris Anderson, okay. um, bought the conference itself. He had just retired from his dot-com, you know, life and okay. had set up a foundation. Um, and he thought, he was a philosophy student at Oxford in his uh, okay. early life. And so he thought, you know, my job a as a retired guy, um, it would be really nice to just talk about ideas all day. And so he runs the conference and then he starts to feel like sharing these amazing talks that are happening on stage, you know, that okay. are just making you laugh and cry and, you know, inspiring all this stuff that actually sharing it with a broader audience than the thousand people who could fit in that room started to feel almost like a moral duty to him, you sure. know, and that's, it's kind of amazing. Um, and so he hired a couple of people to help him think about how to take, you know, a guy standing at a podium or a woman standing at a podium telling you a thing and turn that into content that people might want to consume around the world on what was just starting out this platform of web video. And um, so when did TED.com get born? Yeah. So 2006, so they put up, six talks um, and they're just six talks that you know Chris and his team thought were so amazing and they just put them out on the web you know not okay. too much fanfare I think they sent an email and the next month those six talks had a million views between them and this is in 2006 you know right. like just before Twitter it's before really Facebook was accessible um, it's right when YouTube was just starting yeah so getting a million views on six talks in a month was just like jaw-dropping sure uh, and it was exciting because we sort of realized that there was this or we i wasn't there quite yet um ted realized that there was this appetite for sure interesting ideas presented well so i started there yes yeah, six months later in january 2007 and our goal was to post 100 talks by april <laughs> and see what happened and you know we, we were kind of off to the races at that point um, oh, so now that it's 2016 and a half yep about how many videos are available via the ted platform right now i think it's 2300 and i should have looked up this number okay. um so 2300 talks on ted.com that have been featured as a ted talk of the day because that's okay. how many days there have been Okay. Um, and then on our TEDx platform, which is all okay. these independent events that happen sure. around the world that we don't really have that much control over, I think the number now is 80,000 videos okay. on YouTube from TEDx, Okay, which is like jaw-dropping, 80,000. It is very jaw-dropping. So when you say there's 2,300 or so on the main TED platform mm -hmm. with the goal of releasing one a day, yeah. that implies that there's a large archive of backlogged talks. Yes, okay. um, both on the TEDx channel where you can go and look at you know these 80,000 talks. Okay. And then we actually have a lot of video from 84, from 90, 91 that was sitting in boxes in someone's garage for a while. As you do. Uh, as you do. And um, <laughs> so we've digitized all that and we're, we just this year kicked off a project to start putting that out in the world. And there's some amazing stuff 
you know, on these, but I mean, it's just like, we had stuff on beta tapes, we had formats, like we had to buy a laser disc player, <laughs> you know, like we had crazy old stuff. Well, I can't uh, even really look excited. at discs yeah. from my graduate school days anymore. The readers don't exist. I don't even know <laughs> what lost nuggets of genius are stuck on those pieces of plastic. Oh, yeah, we're, we're a little nervous slash excited. Right. So do you have a, yeah. I mean, you said about 80,000 TEDx, but in your, yeah. in your own archives in people's garages, do you have a sense of how many archived or collected videos you have in your collection, or talks you have in your collection? Yeah, I mean, the 80,000 TEDx, the 2,300 of ours, um, I think there's a 1,000 TED-Ed videos, which are short okay. educational videos sure. that we make. And then, yeah, the, the archive right now is somewhat uncounted because it sure. is, I mean, it, it's it's wild and woolly back there. But um, sure. So, yeah, a lot. <laughs> well, I think um, video archiving... Besides being a very under, uh, what am I going to say, underdeveloped endeavor, quite. I suspect that if you're experiencing on a on a massive scale, a lot of institutions are experiencing because they in the '80s started videotaping things. Mm -hmm. So from the '80s till now, there's 30 years worth of videotapes at every institution on the earth. Yep. Heaven only knows how many millions of undocumented events or talks or performances. Brilliant lectures, yes. you know, like, you know, I, I was thinking about this the other day, you know, when's the last time you played a CD-ROM mm -hmm. and how hard people worked on CD-ROMs, <laughs> uh, you know, like yeah. I remember from Alice to Ocean, which is this thing that came out in the <laughs> mid nineties and it was this fabulous CD-ROM. And I mean, if I had it in my hand today, I couldn't play it for you. <laughs> <laughs> Well, and the comical heathen, you know, I'm interested in religious satire, and I was thinking about the work that you and your colleagues and staff do at TED, curating and managing and producing content. And I just wonder, how do you navigate the tricky landscape of, you know, matters of faith versus matters of fact, or yeah. inspirational speaking versus scientific speaking, or, again... This, this could lead into talking about science versus pseudoscience, but just in general, is that a, a thing you have to manage? Yeah, I mean, it's it's definitely, it's an interesting question that comes up a lot, um, you know, and it's partly because TED is nonprofit okay. and nonpartisan, and, you know, we, we try to be neutral around topics of religion, but on the other hand, mm -hmm. there are definitely interesting ideas that come out of both religious and non-religious contexts. Um, right. You know, we have a talk from the Reverend Billy Graham on on our site and Rick Warren, and both of them are very much about, you know, mm -hmm. you should be a good person, but, you know, you should probably also think about being a Christian person. <laughs> um, okay. You know, and then we have talks by Richard Dawkins and mm -hmm. Alain de Botton, um, you know, who are talking about how to navigate the world as an atheist. Um, right. And so it's, you know, for us, it's important that we show as many sides as possible without, you know, necessarily taking a side. You know, and one of the things that I like about, is I just reread uh, Richard Dawkins' talk transcript. Um, okay. You know, which was this super interesting moment at TED. You know, he's, I, I want to say it's like 2001, late 90s okay. you know and he comes out there in this like full-on like white suit and um he's you know he's booked <laughs> as a scientist and he's he's a well-respected scientist and he's like yeah you know oh no it was 2001 um and 
he comes out, at, you know, to speak as a scientist, and then decides to give a talk about how hard it is to be an atheist as a scientist, um, even today, even now. Okay. And it was a really interesting to me exploration of like, you know, the idea of how if you are an atheist, it's actually still pretty hard, or was at the time, um, hard to talk about it, you know, right. hard to talk about it in polite society. And, you know, that if you do feel a certain way about faith, pro or con, you know, our sure. society should be open to right. honesty, you know, and it, it was an exciting talk in that way, because it was like, you know, he was saying, like, if you're an atheist, like, don't punk out, you know, right. like, <laughs> you know, really, really be one. Well, in 2006, a survey was done of the U.S. Congress mm -hmm. asking them about matters of faith, and it was an anonymous survey, and only about a third, and that included representatives and senators, I think, mm -hmm. replied. But of the third who replied, a third said anonymously that they were atheists. Wow. But then when I... When it, when it, there was a spot on the form that said, if you like, you can reveal who you are, or you can remain anonymous. Only one person of the people who said they were atheists put their name on their survey. And it was a uh, representative from the state of California. Ah, yeah. Well, I mean, even just this week, you know, uh, Kasich is ragging on who? Uh, Daniel Radcliffe. Harry Potter! Yes. For me. You know, I mean, like, the fact that this is still accepted discourse, sure. you know, that it's still okay to say you know, negative things about somebody because of their faith or lack of faith, um, you know, is, is pretty, pretty stunning. Um, but, you know, I also thought in 2016, there wouldn't be, you know, playboys or racism. So <laughs> fool me. I, so uh, you'll correct me if I have the timeline wrong. From what I can ascertain in this 2012, perhaps fall or December of 2012, Ted produced a memo, which I believe was directed towards TEDx organizers. Local TEDx organizers around the world, yes, indeed. Of which there are now many. Yes, quite a few. And it was providing some guidelines. I don't know if that's the appropriate word. I'm, I'm looking at this letter, and I noticed two things about it immediately. Mm -hmm. One is, in the conclusion, the very last sentence, how to stop bad science talks. Mm -hmm. So that seems to be, in a nutshell, the theme of this memo how to stop bad science talks. Mm -hmm. And the second thing I noticed is that it was signed by Emily McManus. Yes, indeed. <laughs> so <laughs> what, what, what's the deal with this memo? Why did you I write it? You Why did you need one. to write it? Yeah, what were your this, goals? This was an interesting, uh, an interesting discussion. So what was happening in the TEDx community is, um, you know, we were growing this program that we had started on, like, literally two Google Docs. We're like, oh, you know, nobody is going to throw their own. <laughs> TEDx. You know, like nobody wants to do this. We're gonna have six events, you know, the year that mm. we founded it. And, you know, and we had like a hundred. And I think there's more than one TEDx talk every day now. Like people <laughs> love throwing TEDx events. Okay. Um, which is exciting. And we license these events. We give you a free license and you adhere to some guidelines, um, mainly mm. around branding, what you can mm. and can't ask for money for, you know, you can't right. run it as a for-profit thing. And so they became really popular and they're really fun. And, you know, if you have one in your local area, they're, they're usually interesting to at least track. But what ended up happening is because we had hundreds and hundreds of curators. Like um, on the local level for the TEDx's. 
on the local level for the TEDx's, every so often in these thousands and thousands of talks we were getting, there would clearly be a talk where somebody had talked their way onto stage mm -hmm. in order to have, um, you know, their talk filmed very well and, mm -hmm. you know, in front of this audience. But the, what they were saying wasn't necessarily true. Okay. Um, and so there were a couple of talks early on. The one that got us started, and actually you can find this on Quora, was a guy who basically, he, he basically believed that we would solve a lot of problems in the world if we went to a base nine counting system and built this particular kind of engine based on the principles of this new counting system that would produce um, perpetual power and food for the world. And it was just like this, this sort of crazed uh, <laughs> idea, but the guy was really compelling. He was a super, super compelling speaker. Okay. And the talk started to get some traction and then like math bloggers and science bloggers started to go like, is this Ted? Is this what Ted stands for? Is this kind of like, you know, basically medicine show science. And it was interesting because this is, this is a place where I think about the intersection of what I'm interested in and what you're interested in, um, you know, being a stand-up comedian, working a room, communicating, because the guy that gave this talk and I hope there's no copies of it on YouTube. I'll try and send you a link. But the guy who gave this talk had this way of speaking that was so perfectly tuned to persuade you. Sure. Um, you know, he had this like line of pattern. And I ended up on the phone with him, which I didn't expect. And um, <laughs> he had a way of speaking that was like somebody somebody uh, described it as like like talking to Kid Rock. You know, okay. it was just like very insinuating, very like, hey, babe, you know, and at the same time, very, very combative, very like, you know, I am so tuned into you and everything that you say, I am going to flip back because I'm right. in control of this conversation. Right. You know, like one of those. I almost wish you had a recording of that conversation. I know, I know, <laughs> I swear. It was so fascinating. And afterward, I'm just like, what What just happened? You know, so we, we came out of this conversation. I was like, well, you know, send me the papers on, on your on your math, you know, like I, I want to take them seriously and I'll send them to somebody. And he never did okay. because there were no papers, because there's no math. This right. was just a guy kind of, if you, have you ever seen the retro encabulator? I have not. <laughs> I will send you this link. It's hilarious. It's just like three minutes of solid gibberish. Okay. Uh, it's a sort of beautiful comedy routine. Um, there's the turbo encabulator, there's the retro encabulator, there's the Rockwell retro encabulator. And it's just a guy saying stuff he doesn't understand, but very, very compellingly. Okay. So we had this talk and we had this sort of controversy going and like the Harvard Business Review wrote about it. Like people were really starting to notice that this sort of okay. bad science, that there wasn't a hard gate around it sure. for TEDx. Um, that if somebody was persuasive enough, they could get onto a TEDx okay. stage. And there were a couple of other incidents like that where we were just like, um, that we need to give our TEDx organizers um, some guidance, you know, okay. and not just guidance of like, you have to be a science expert to book sure. a scientist. Because that's the, the big thing that we didn't want to say. We were just like, you know, you should book people who are interesting to you in your community. But these are some tools right. to know if somebody is going to bring non-science to your stage. Okay. And a lot of the tools are not even about knowing science because, you know, what we were hearing back from people is like, you know, I want to book this mathematician. I'm not a math expert. Right. You know, like, how can I tell if this person's right or wrong? Um, and so one of the parts of the letter that I think is so interesting <laughs> is actually stolen from um, a woman named Emily Willingham, 
completely <laughs> stolen, and I credit her. Yes, yeah, so you do credit her. I noticed that. So yeah. Um, so no plagiarism here. Thank you. Yeah, <laughs> but it's the idea of like that there are behaviors around pseudoscience that you can also look for, um, you know, so that you can start to develop your spidey sense. Um, and that would be somebody who is very aggressive, um, somebody who has claims to have knowledge no one else has, you know, uh, people who live in a complete silo of just information right. that they've created about themselves. Yeah, it's um, in the memo, like one point is red flag topics. Yeah. And then subsequently it's red flag behaviors. Yeah. Yes. And it's because it's, we, we realized we couldn't list every possible thing that could go wrong. Right. You know, there's definitely <laughs> some things that are red flags. You know, for me personally, somebody who is talking about autism cures or right. autism treatments that are not based in fact, like right. those people can go to hell. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Indeed. You know, like you need to look hard at people like that because it's an industry. Right. You know, it's not a scientific field. It's an industry meant to, you know, sure. generate cash on the back of, of parents. You know, and there are some other places where, again, you're going to be like, oh, you know, are you, you know, this person may or may not be making advances in the field of science, but it is a field of science that attracts a lot of fluff and you need right. to be extra careful sure. and uh, you need, you have a responsibility to be careful around these particular fields. Um, but then the, the behavior thing is more just like if somebody comes at you from complete left field right. and you're just like, you know, I've never, I've never heard of this guy never heard of the science, you know, I'm not going to become an expert in it, but I'm seeing these behaviors from this person. That's another way just to develop your spidey sense, you know, and just to say like, there's something a little funky about this and I am going to dig deeper. Just so our listeners, I um, mean, you can find this memo online in different places, so you can find mm -hmm. it to read it. But just so our listeners know, what were two or three of the red flag topics that you mentioned? Um, let's see. We've got, uh, yeah, food as medicine as cures for autism. Okay. Um, it's tough. And again, not a banned topic by any means, but, right. you know, a place where you need to be careful. And we saw different forms of healing, sure. um, <laughs> you know, which is tough. But, you know, we do, we have seen talks on things like energy fields, placebos, crystals, right? you know, perpetual motion, alchemy, time travel. I mean, <laughs> sure. you know, and there's, there's a point where you, you should be careful. You know, and there's interesting thinking around mm -hmm. all these fields, but you should know that they're also attracting people who necess not, aren't necessarily going to tell you the truth to get on your stage in front of your audience. One of your topics, and I'm just looking at the memo right now, is the fusion yeah. of science and spirituality. Yeah. So what, what are we? What 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 is Ted? watching out for there or advising people to watch out for there yeah in in that case um yeah it's it's trying to prove that a particular religious belief is correct using science and there's okay. a couple of uh, physicists who are kind of in that field you know i mean the fact that we have you know whatever mountains means that god made them kind of right. thing and you know it's it's tough because if i had this letter to write again because again we wrote this letter not very quickly but under under duress sure. um you know, we wrote this letter in reaction to some events that we were a little bit freaked out by and honestly, were kind of happening he, in real time as well so they exactly. needed attention um and you know i and you'll see up, up above you know we have made a public correction to it um which is that we also name as one of our red flag topics 
anti-GMO foodists. And I put that in air quotes. Right. And I don't know you, if you can do that in audacity. <laughs> yes. <laughs> uh, because that's a super offensive term. Um, right. You know, I mean, you, you don't call somebody a foodist. And I was a jerk to do it. It's it's not, uh, you know, it's, it, it wasn't right. a nice word to use. And we were kind of like, oh, God. You know, it, it really was like speaking at a moment of, of stress. Right. Uh, so this memo know, gets out to it, your yeah. TEDx organizers and then into the interwebs and the worldwide webs and what were some of the reactions to this memo like that started a whole new chapter of good and bad right it's yeah i mean it (laughs) it definitely you know it hasn't stopped psychic healers from trying to get to the tedx stage um and you know i don't think anything ever will stop that kind of thing i mean the thing is you know the tedx program is reflective of humanity as a whole it's reflective of things that that people are interested in and what we need and what we need what we needed and what this is 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 a pretty flexible document where you can kind of go you you can throw your idea against it you know and you you might you might find an answer you might need to call the tedx staffer you know in new york and just go i i need a gut check on this uh but it started the conversation and then what it really, what meant a lot to me at the time was a couple of the science bloggers who had been a little cranky about TED, you know, because science is about being, you know, being careful and it's about being fact-based and... It's about participating in a process. So exactly. <laughs> if you're not participating in the process, both yeah. the speakers, but then also the curators. Yeah. And yeah. It, I think what people liked about this letter was that you know, they show it showed that we were we were in the process with them. Sure. I, I really like the way you put it, like that, you know, sort of throwing up our hands and going, oh, you know, this is no, but, we can't solve this problem. But but, you know, trying yeah. to jump into the conversation a little bit and, you know, without like laying the science smack down on right. people, you know, well, I will say like, um, yeah. in the letters available, memos available for people to see if they were super curious. Another part of the memo also says sort of point blank, no topic is banned. But <laughs> some are a little funky. Yes. Yeah. And, but, and, but that doesn't mean um, that you don't. Yeah, I mean, it, it does say no topic is banned. And then I think the rest of the memo is, but that doesn't mean you don't have a curatorial responsibility. <laughs> like you still yeah, have a responsibility. That's a nice way to put it. Because um, exactly like, you know, if you were thinking about, um, you know, your responsibility to your audience. Right. You know, earlier up in the letter, there's there's a, a point where we were saying, you know, there's no bright and shining line between <laughs> pseudoscience and real science. There's stuff that seems extremely freaky now right. in, you know, that's sure. on the edge of science that might turn out to be right or wrong, right. you know, and. But, you know, I, but I, I did want to ask, I mean, again, yeah. we, when I think we both know examples. I mean, there were at yeah. least in, in some quarters, some felt that this letter represented some form of censorship. Oh, for sure. Right. Yeah. And, you know, that's, I mean, people are always going to conflate curation right. and censorship. Yes. Uh, you know, and at a certain point, you have to think about your responsibility as a platform, as a place right. that is putting out information. To me, one of the lines between, you know, pseudoscience and pseudoscience or science or one of the tests that you can give, mm-hmm. you know, when you're thinking about whether or not to promote something. And again, you know, when, when people are saying censorship, obviously... You know, we're we're coming from a very Western perspective. We're coming from a background right. of government free yes. speech. You know, when when we talk about censorship in 
the real world and the rest of the world, you know, the idea that somebody can't put their psychic healing talk up on TEDx becomes laughable. Right. (laughs) (laughs) This is a world where journalists are routinely stalked and killed. You know, know, like this is not, you know, this is not a free speech problem that, that I'm like, you know, well, I also think it, it's mm. it's a parallel. I don't know if it's exactly the same, but I'll tell you what it reminds me of. Fans mm-hmm. of a either a TV show or an artist or a singer or a comedian who the artist, you know, if they're professional, they're probably getting paid, but they're giving perhaps years and decades worth of content. Mm-hmm. And then some fan now like reverses it and complains, like, you don't have a right to do that. Like, oh, gotcha. There's you know, thousands of hours of like, Seinfeld generated comedy out there and then if one episode of Seinfeld something offends you the whole project is now like torn down in some people's minds so to me Ted is like almost providing a public service and some people have turned it around in their mind as if Ted owes them something thank you for saying that (laughs) (laughs) I mean the thing is you know we we do owe our audience certain things you know we owe them a responsibility to be accurate. We owe them, yes. you know, responsibility to live out our goals mm-hmm. of being nonpartisan and being open and global and, you know, all these things that we really want to want to believe in. But yeah, like if I'm going to, you know, if you are bound and determined to put a comment under a TED talk about, you know, how sweaty one of my speakers looks and you know, <laughs> he should have worn a comb over, I'm going to delete that comment <laughs> and that is not a free speech issue, <laughs> you know. I at least want to um, tackle an example, and you can we can spend a, a, a moment or many moments. I'll leave that up to you. But you know, right around the same time, um, mm-hmm. I think January of 2013, uh, Rupert Sheldrick gave a now infamous TEDx talk in London yes, that uh, did eventually end up on the TED blog in one form or another. But at the time it sort of fell right in the smack dab of this conversation about science versus pseudoscience and curatorial responsibilities. Yes, and it was an interesting moment for us with TEDx as well as a growing company because we were like, we learned a hard lesson with the Rupert Sheldrake controversy and that is that the internet does not like things being taken off of it. (laughs) (laughs) There's people right uh, now looking for Janice Jackson's nipple I don't think <laughs> there's people right now looking for Janis Jackson's nipple. Right. So. <laughs> oh, it's yeah. It's there it's somewhere. There. <laughs> it's and, you know, and that's the thing with like all these other TEDx talks. Like if you want them, you can find them. Uh, you know, the Internet does, you know, it does not forget. Right. And so what we in, had a, in a, so a, a nutshell, what happened with Sheldrick? Ruben Sheldrick is this interesting guy. <laughs> and, uh, you know, not a dumb guy. He's a, um, you know, tenured professor at some university in, in England. Mm-hmm. He has this thesis that, um, you know, there are aspects of science that are actively lying to people, um, that science right. is a delusion. Right. Um, I think that's his, his book is called The Science Delusion. Right. And, um, you know, that there are things that scientists aren't telling you. Right. Uh, and... It's a very confrontational book, obviously, <laughs> um, you know, especially coming from a tenured professor at right. you know, whatever university he's at. You know, he has some fans, but he also has some people who really, 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 really don't like him. So we saw the talk and our scientists in our community were like, you know, you, you can't give this guy a platform. Right. We looked at the talk. And the speech at, was about how science is lying to you. Yeah. And, and we looked at the talk, we had it transcribed, yeah. you know, I mean, we spent a lot of time thinking about this and we came to 
to me, one of the lines between science and pseudoscience that touches on the responsibility of the presenter. And that line is, will promoting this talk make something actively bad? Right. Um, you know, and an example might be if we had a talk from a psychic healer who's like, you know, the reason that you have cancer is that you have these negative thoughts and you need to get the negative thoughts out. Right. Uh, and the mother of a five-year-old with cancer looks at this and goes, oh, shoot, you know, right. this is all my fault. What happened? Right. That's actively bad. That's yes. making that mother's life bad, you know. Or if someone says, you know, you should try and cure your cancer with, with Reiki and healing mm -hmm. touch and you can go ahead and get off your mm -hmm. chemo. Right. You know, that's making somebody's life yes. actively bad. One of the things that gets under my skin, and I think we're seeing this a lot in this current election cycle, is people who so mistrust in mm -hmm. institutions that I think are valid. Science as a whole is based on, as you say, you know, developing ideas. It's this ideally self-correcting system. And, you know, it's, I, I hear this kind of rhetoric now around the independent media, you know, sure. that you should, you should stop trusting the media. The media is lying right. to you. I mean, Yes. I'm in the media. We're not aligning in any way on this, you know. Um, and and so it seemed to me very, it seemed to me pernicious, honestly, yes. that you would deliberately so mistrust in the system. Well, sure. I think it's fine if you challenge it, obviously. Um, but the idea that you're going out to a lay audience and telling them not to trust science really bugged me. Yes. Uh, well, this, isn't he, isn't Sheldrake associated with uh, being a champion of the notion of morphic resonances is that one of his things guy. yeah and you know a lot of the things that he's i mean it, it, just under the category of him and his the science delusion science is lying to you thesis is shall we say legitimate scientists have done experiments on his ideas of morphic resonance yeah. demonstrating they don't work and then he has written about the, those experiments in his book, like other people's experiments, and then saying they worked. Like it's, he's literally <laughs> misconstruing it, experiments. Yeah. <laughs> it, and that's, that's the line to me. Like if he's yes. just a, a muckraker and an yes. interesting guy and he's like, you know, we should be looking harder at this problem. Amazing. But if he's, you know, yeah, actively, actively not only sort of misrepresenting others' work, you know, but... Yes. To me, when someone is trying to sow mistrust in a system, mm -hmm. it's because they have another system they're trying to sell you. Well, I, uh, I would worry that the system that they're trying to sell you is that they are better than the system. Yeah. Trust me. Don't trust the system. And P.S. Buy my book. Yes. And buy my <laughs> book. Before we run out of time, I want to ask, wanted to ask yeah. you one more question, perhaps on a lighter note, <laughs> as my interest is in um, comedy and religious satire. Ted has yeah. certainly included talks by well-known comedians and entertainers. Just as a, a, a random, almost plug for yourself, what mm -hmm. what's your favorite entertainer or comedian Ted talk? I mean, I'm gonna. <laughs> this is awful. Uh, one of my favorite funny TEDx talks is from uh, Will Steven at TEDx New York. How to sound smart in your TED talk. Okay. And it's just like this <laughs> brutal note for note parody of the form. Okay. Um, and we show it now to speakers and we're like, <laughs> you don't have to do this stuff. Because you know? the thing is like, you know, when we think about, when we think about religion, when we think about faith, when we think mm -hmm. about, you know, you know, when we think about sharing an idea, 
like the thing you always want to avoid is an empty form, right. you know, where you have the red rug and you have the little microphone on your head and you have the fancy hand gestures and voila, you have a TED talk. No, yes. you know, you have the form <laughs> of a TED talk. So yeah, I love Will Stevens' talk. I love Reggie Watts' talk from TED, which okay. is another just like extremely weird parody of a <laughs> TED talk. Um, yeah, obviously, I'm extremely like I, sure. I'm a connoisseur of of TED talk parodies. Yes. But, um, you know, they they always tell us something interesting, and yes. um, yeah, and well, I, I just I often um, you know, in, when teaching theater classes or acting classes, have the students stage acting classes. And then oh, wow. one out of five will do a parody of me. That's <laughs> oh, brutal. Yes. And it's, you know, because I've like, I've given them license to do this. So I almost can't say anything. So yeah. rather it's more like a, a uh, learnable moment for me. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Like, ooh. Here's things they can make fun of about me. <laughs> yeah. And, it, you know, you, you makes you a, a better, richer person. <laughs> <laughs> Right. Yeah, that's I, I love that. I, I love when people like pull our leg a little bit. Well, before I um, say thank you and goodbye, is there anything else on the topic of uh, either religious satire or TED Talks that you'd like to get off your chest? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, <laughs> I had some thoughts on like, you know, comparing church and, and going to a TED. Uh, <laughs> sure. <laughs> which were kind of amazing. But um, yeah, my, my favorite thing that I wrote ahead of time was, uh, <laughs> yeah, if you are an atheist, don't punk out. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, I, I love it. Well, I, I saw a demographic split of, you know, they talk about the rise of the nuns the past few years, N-O-N-E-S, yeah. which doesn't, not every nun, N-O-N-E, is an atheist. But there are people who, when asked what their religion is on census forms, pick none as their choice. So that could include atheists, agnostics, other types of spiritualists, solo pilgrims. Mm -hmm. But that is the largest growing religious demographic in the country right now is nuns. And if you take the designator Christian and break it down into separate categories like Protestant, Episcopalian, Catholic, Nuns are bigger than I think any of those individual groups. It's evangelicals might be close, so it's nuns and evangelicals are the two biggest religious groups. If you split the Christians it. out, <laughs> and you know, I mean, it's it's one of the things we think about with like, you know, what do you miss once you're a nun? You know, yes. what do you miss <laughs> about? Because I mean, I you know, I remember when I was whatever ten, and I'm like sitting at the right. you know sitting in the pews. I went to Baptist mm -hmm. church as a kid and I'm sitting in the pew and I'm like, yeah, I don't think there's a God, you know, and I'm 10. I mean, you yes. met me when I was 16. I mean, you could picture a 10 year old. <laughs> like, I don't think there's a God, um, but I really liked church, sure. you know, Absolutely. and I went to Ashland Avenue Baptist mm -hmm. church in, you know, downtown right. Toledo. And there was always a sign out front that was like what the sermon was for that week. Sure. And I was always like, do people literally like walk by and go like, oh, I got to get in for this Whoa, one. Oh, yes. <laughs> Like people Stopped driving around on Sunday morning looking at the different sermon titles until they right? pick the one that you appeals know, like, to them that day. Someone's going to really take on Corinthians, you know, like this is it. And <laughs> yes. <you're> gonna, you know, <laughs> the definitive no, sermon like, on Corinthians. It's non-viral content. Like you just go and you just have this nice community time yeah, and you absolutely see you, you act your best and you dress your best and you act mm -hmm. in this sort of pretty ritualistic communal yeah. way yeah. and you see, you know, the best of people. Sure. Um, and 
you know, I, I think actually Alenda Botan talks about, you know, what, what atheists should be looking at from Mm -hmm. different church experiences, you know, and how do we recreate that nice sense of community and understanding and, you know, being at your best in a, (laughs) you know, formal way. Well, that almost sounds like a positive enough note on which to stop. (laughs) So well done, Jerry. It it just (laughs) remains. Thank you. Well played. It just (laughs) remains for me, your host, Dr. Jerry Jaffe, to thank you, Emily McManus, for being our guest today. Oh, my pleasure, Jerry. Thank you so much. (laughs) All right. Thank you. This is your host again, Dr. Jerry Jaffe. What a great time I had with uh, catching up with Emily. I'm a big TED watcher, and I really enjoyed hearing more about the history and behind-the-scenes intrigue of working at TED. Uh, Emily's a wit and a wag and is always fun to talk to about just anything. A story about the unexpected fallout from that memo meant to help local TEDx organizers was certainly, you know, a bit of a surprise. I found that interesting. I have a link to the memo uh, included in the information with this podcast if you want to take a look at it yourself. Now, before we finish up today, I'd like to make a quick trip over to the rabbit hutch. Me and my wife are rabbit enthusiasts, and we keep uh, two beautiful Holland Lops, Kevin Bacon and Newton. I've noticed that one of the last uses for old-fashioned paper newspapers is lining the bottom of a rabbit cage, and that's what we do. Uh, A funny thing happens when doing that, though. I come across a lot of headlines. It's just like I've gone back to reading the newspaper but only at the bottom of rabbit cages. And there's one type of headline that always stands out to me. I see a lot of historical and factual misinformation out there about religion in newspapers and other news because of the way most reporters treat religion, like soft journalism. Because of that, not even doing too much digging, you can find a lot of questionable ideas or indeed factual errors in some articles on religion. Whenever I find examples of these, I have to set the record straight, you know, because it's good for our souls to know things. So I'd like to pull a headline out of the bottom of the rabbit hutch. Sometimes, when you go over to the rabbits, and the rabbits are just lying around relaxing, you'll see the rabbits lie on top of each other like they're pillows. When Kevin Bacon uses Newton for a pillow, that is the cutest thing I've ever seen. No, wait a second. Maybe I should back up. Uh, when Kevin Bacon uses Newton for a pillow... That's the cutest thing I've ever seen, except, of course, for my beautiful wife. No, wait a second. Okay, one more time. Yeah, I got it. I'll say it this way. Whenever Kevin Bacon uses Newton for a pillow, that is the cutest thing I've ever seen, except for my beautiful wife and my lovely children. But then, definitely, Kevin Bacon using Newton for a pillow. So what did I find today at the bottom of the rabbit hutch? An article from the Huffington Post with this headline. There are no irreligious people. I mean, that caught my eye right away because that is quite a generalization. And it's like, well, knock me out and call me honey mustard. I wanted to see what this writer had in mind. Turns out this was an op-ed piece written by Rabbi Eric Yoffe, who is a well-known speaker and writer. He's written for Time and the Huffington Post and other publications. So what does Rabbi Yoffe think about there are no irreligious people? So he starts off his essay asserting boldly, quote, we are all religious, every one of us, Eh, wrong again, thank you for playing, but not me. 
I just want to assure you that if you're ever on Jeopardy and the answer is Jerry Jaffe, you can buzz in and say, who is someone who is completely without religion? Because you will get the right answer. In fact, I hope it was double Jeopardy and you bet it all because you're going to win a lot of money. Because what has two thumbs and is completely without religion? This guy. Well, Rabbi Yaffe goes on to claim, and this is another quote, religion is deeply rooted in human nature and a response to certain profound and universal needs of humankind. Let's see here. Deeply rooted, he says. Profound, he says. Humankind, universal needs. I just want to stop for a second here and point out that uh, poetry does not equal facts. Like, there are a lot of beautiful words in what he just said there. But that doesn't make it true because it sounds neat. You know, uh, sadly, poetry itself is not a form of evidence. And the actual idea he's articulating lacks any support in psychology, sociology, anthropology, anything. Just sometimes words sound nice together. But even if something is good poetry, that doesn't make it true. This offends me as both a good teacher and a bad poet myself. If good poetry was all we needed, we'd all worship at the Church of Bob Dylan, and Shakespeare would have discovered evolution. Going on, Rabbi Yaffe asserts, you cannot extinguish religion. But I say, give us a chance. Let us try. Don't rule it out. We are still working on it. I mean, that's what they said in 1977 about disco, but no one wears bell-bottoms anymore. And you don't know how cultures are going to change in the future. I mean, before the 14th century, no one wore pants. Then, pants were invented in the 14th century. Now you take them for granted. Now everybody wears them. Men wear pants. Women wear pants. Kids wear pants. Everyone wears pants. Except for a few cartoon ducks. Those sick, sick, perverted ducks. But that's it. Everybody else wears pants. So you see, culture can change. You don't know what the future can hold for culture. As Rabbi Yaffe goes on, he starts to try to define what he means by religion. He has this quote. Religion is, uh, quote, that part of our being that gives expression to the human craving for transcendence. Human craving? Isn't that definition human craving? Just a little too convenient if you were in some kind of a coffeehouse debate with your religious friends. Religion is now human craving for transcendence? What kind of definition for religion is that? Any definition of religion that does not include concepts like faith or the supernatural is not a normal or typical definition for the word religion. I mean, if I have desire or longing in my heart, but I don't believe in fairies or reincarnation or talking bushes, how am I still religious? Heck, there is no evidence, actually, that any part of our human being craves transcendence. I barely even believe in the movie Transcendence. In philosophy, changing the terms of your definition or your evidence during an argument so you can never be wrong is called moving the goalposts. And that is what Rabbi Yaffe is doing with his definition of religion. He's trying to make it fit his theme that everyone is religious, even people who are not. For example, he goes on to define religion, and this is another quote, the wellspring of optimism and hope. Now the definition of religion is hope? That's an even worse definition for religion. It's just too convenient. It's too convenient. It's too simple. But it's meaningless as an actual definition. Now, if you have an atheist say they don't believe in God and the religious friend fires back, do you hope? That somehow proves the atheist is a believer in someone else's dogma? 
I have hope. I, I admit it to you today, I have hope. I hope that I am not religious. Wah, wah, and with that paradox, I think I just broke the God machine. Even more useless as a definition for a debate, Rabbi Yaffe then claims, another quote here, religion being misused is not religion, but religion fostering care, healing, and peace is real religion. He keeps making his definition simpler, and he keeps moving the goalposts, or as Tom Brady would call it, deflating the football. Well, isn't that convenient? Anything a non-believer might point out as harmful about religion, and now suddenly and magically, those things are not actually religion anymore. Well, that'll be a great comfort to all the medieval Jews who were forced by the Inquisition to convert to Christianity. That'll help everyone who thinks they're going to hell because they ate meat on Friday. Misused? Misusing religion? How about misusing religion for vague, preachy, self-justifying blog articles? Is that misuse of religion? If we deflate this football anymore, all we're going to have left is the pigskin, and then, depending on your religion, you might not even be able to touch that. I appreciate that later on in his column something Rabbi Yaffe says, because he frankly admits that he is making this claim that there are no religious people, and I'm quoting him, mostly without evidence. Which was his way of telling me that I had just wasted ten minutes of my time. Arguing without evidence is like trying to boil water without heat. Ten minutes of my life is just gone, and I'm not even going to get any tea out of the deal. This is not how arguments are supposed to go. I find that I do live in hope. Hope for a world where evidence is the basis for our rational knowledge, not wishful thinking. It's wishful thinking and lack of evidence that leads to things like faith healers or the Creation Museum or Sean Hannity. He then wanted to point out that a lot of people around the world believe in religion, so that should mean something, right? He said, look at all the people that make up the 10,000 different religions in the world today. I said, make up is the perfect word for that statement. Yes, they made up those 10,000 religions. Wordplay. That was pretty clever, I thought. Hey, when I used to play Dungeons and Dragons in high school, I made up all kinds of elven girlfriends. But that doesn't mean I ever actually had sex. Not even if I rolled a natural 20. I will say with all sincerity that I embrace Rabbi Yaffe's hopes for peace and healing, but my ability to empathize with him does not mean I believe in religion. Rabbi Yaffe argues without evidence that I am religious, even if I say I am not. Yet I would argue that without evidence, he cannot even prove that he himself is religious. Wow, the power of the paradox. Our writer here ruins his own argument by contradicting himself. He argues that we are all religious, like it or not. I counter that some of us indeed are not religious, whether he likes it or not. And that is what I found at the bottom of the rabbit hutch underneath the big hopping feet of Kevin Bacon and Newton. Since I consider misinformation a sin, I call this misinformation. Whenever I see examples of misinformation, I have to speak out. I'm not trying to ruin anybody else's good time. But hey, it's not about your dogma. It's my karma. And I'm all about spreading the love. Having said that, it just remains for me to thank Emily McManus for being our guest today on The Comical Heathen. I want to thank Kevin Bacon and Newton for inspiring me to continue to read newspaper headlines. I want to thank my very good friend Jeff Geddert for all of his uh, technical advice and moral support. And remember that lovely Bach organ music you hear during the show 
is played by my friend Mark Bell. If you enjoy his music, you can purchase Mark's CD online. And that just remains for me to thank you for listening, and I hope you'll join us again. I'm Dr. Jerry Jaffe. Thank you.